the sparkotypes are a little bit different in that we're actually not talking about skill or talent or character trait. What we're talking about is a very honed in underlying impulse to exert effort in a particular way for no other reason than the feeling that it gives you. Now, that impulse, if it's followed, may end up leading you to be incredibly skilled at the, the different ways that the impulse can be expressed. You know, so anti-sparkotype, by the way, for those who are watching and listening, that is the type of work that tends to take the most out of you, tends to be the heaviest lift and require the greatest recovery. It doesn't mean you're bad at it. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that there's something in you where this takes more work for you. And when you do it, you generally, it takes a bit more for you to recover. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Jonathan Fields. Jonathan is the best-selling author of multiple books, as well as the host and executive producer of the extremely popular podcast, The Good Life Project. Jonathan's, Jonathan's work has been featured widely in the media, including the New York Times, Fast Company, The Wall Street Journal, Inc., Entrepreneur, Forbes, Oprah Magazine, Elle, Allure, The Guardian, and many others. Much of our discussion in this episode revolves around his latest book, Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive, which is designed to help you discover what actually lights you up personally and professionally. The book is largely based on Jonathan's revolutionary sparkotype assessment that has helped over 500,000 people experience meaning, joy, purpose, and fulfillment in the work that they do. Our chat begins by unpacking a few pivotal moments of adversity for Jonathan that have led him to where he is today. Early in his life, he was forced to leave his financially stable job as an attorney after he literally nearly worked himself to death. He then went on to work in the health and wellness space and ended up opening a yoga studio the day before 9-11 in New York City. We talk about how Jonathan got through these unfortunate situations and how they shaped what he's doing today. We get into certain ideas from his latest book, including why it's not always smart to leave your job and pursue a passion project and how to discover what drives and challenges you the most. Jonathan shares his thoughts on why experiencing the full spectrum of both good and bad emotions is actually beneficial to living a happy life. And we also chat about the most common and least common sparkotypes and how each of them can have a dark side. Jonathan also shares how he deals with overthinking and impatience, which is part of the dark side of his sparkotype. This episode is going to leave you feeling both inspired and empowered to embrace self-discovery and unpack what drives you to be your best. So let's get this conversation going. And welcome Jonathan Fields to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's so good to be here with you. Yeah, I've been excited for this for, for a while because I've been following you for, for a really long time. As a matter of fact, one of my best friends has gotten into podcasting probably the last three years. And he, like the Good Life Project was his first podcast mm. he came across. And he was actually the one who initially... Um, got me to start listening to your show. And then I know we have mutual friends and mutual connections. But one of the things that's 
it's kind of fascinating that I didn't expect is that you grew up as a gymnast. Do you still practice any of that? I don't. It kind of, I was, I was unusually flexible as a young kid. And I think some, some sort of local coaches took notice and I ended up, you know, sort of tracking my way into being a competitive gymnast, which I did pretty much year round until I was in the beginning of college. And you know, the good news, bad news, good news, it, it was amazing. It took, taught me so much about my body and about movement and the mind-body connection and about physical toughness, mental toughness, resilience, training, but, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. The bad news is it kind of wrecked my body <laughs> because, you know, I'm 55 and the way that we trained when I was a teenager is so profoundly different than the way that you would train now. You know, we just know so much more about what's appropriate for a young body and, and how to treat it in a way where, you know, you're not sort of just absolutely wrecking it and, and making it <laughs> generating problems for later in life. So I've since, you know, pulled away from it for many decades now, but that deep passion for understanding the mind-body connection and the way that they work as a seamless feedback mechanism, that's never left me, you know. That has always been a really big part of who I am and a deep fascination to the point where, you know, later in life, I ended up in, in the world of entrepreneurship in a brick and mortar way and, you know, in the world of fitness and then yoga. And I just kept amassing different credentials and certifications and trainings because, you know, it helped me professionally, but, but even more than that, it's just been a lifelong fascination. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really inspiring. And we were before we recorded, we were talking about the similarities between your and Rich's story. And Rich, you know, use swimming as that mechanism to develop that mind-body connection and develop discipline and perseverance and work ethic and everything goes along with that. And it seems like you used, you know, gymnastics to develop that for yourself. And I guess, we're, I mean, there's so many different parts of your story and how it all relates to what you're doing now with your latest book that I want to dive into. But I guess what, like first, you're a corporate lawyer, then you have a health scare, which we'll talk about in a little bit that kind of sends you off that path into health and fitness. You become a trainer, you work at a gym, you open up a studio, and then you, you end up opening up a yoga studio like the day before 9-11. And I guess my question for you, there's a lot of people, like especially over the last few years, that have experienced these massive, unexpected setbacks. And then it's crippled them mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, like back then, like, how did you develop like the courage to continue to move forward? You know, after you started a business, arguably before one of the most tragic days in the history of our country. Yeah. You know, it's something that I reflect on fairly regularly and, and for sure, you know, every September. I, I, until like literally a couple of months ago, I've been a lifelong New Yorker, you know, lived in New York city for three decades and was in New York city for nine 11. And, you know, there, there are people that I knew that are no longer on the planet after that day, like so many others. So I've reflected because I had, so the timing around that was actually, I was married, I had a, a three month old baby and we had just bought a new home in Hell's Kitchen, New York. And I, I signed a six year lease for a floor in a building in New York city with the hope of opening what I you know, hoped would be like a, a beautiful place of healing and movement and yoga the day before 9-11. And then had to make a decision, like, am I going to walk away from this or are we going to push forward and open this? So we actually opened the facility about eight weeks later. And I think one of the things that was pivotal in my flipping the script in my head from fear to future oriented service was that you know, we knew somebody who didn't come home that day. So, 
he was the youngest partner in the financial firm that was on the top floor of one of the towers that came down. And we found ourselves um, at his house with his wife. And then I think it was six month old and two and a half year old son sitting vigil and waiting for him, you know, waiting for dad to come home. And with our three month old baby sitting in a little car carrier snoozing. And I, re- I remember everybody sort of left towards the end of the day. My wife and I were the last ones there. And, and she and, and our friend went upstairs to put the two and a half year old or, or to put the, the baby to bed. And, and they asked if I would go upstairs and actually just read a little bit to the two and a half year old. And I remember walking up the stairs and opening the door and seeing him just sort of half tucked in his bed, waiting for his dad to read him a story. And I was the one who was there. And, you know, we, we, we didn't know if his dad was ever coming home. And that was a really hard, profound moment for me. And driving home from that, you know, it really, it really made me focus on this truth that, you know, we've got one pass through and a lot of stuff is going to bring us to our knees. <laughs> a lot of things aren't going to go our way. And we don't know how long that pass is going to be, you know, it could be decades and decades and decades. It could be minutes. And to the extent that we can find the, the will and the why to push forward, even when we're in a place of uncertainty, even when we have imperfect information, even when we don't know how things are going to end, whether our, our idea is good enough or whether we're good enough, to the extent that we can actually still take that first step and then the next and then the next and then the next in the name of making the most of whatever time we have here, like that that I was going to say that message really landed with me in that experience, but it wasn't a message. It was a felt sense. It was such a visceral, emotional experience. Driving home, I remember because you know, my wife and I had been talking about, are we going to, are we going to pull out of this lease and just like try and like figure out what to do, or are we going to push forward and open a new business in what was then the most horrifying time in the history of New York City? And it was that experience that I think really shifted the way that I saw moments like that. And to this day, continues to inform the way that I see invitations to step into a place of uncertainty with substantial stakes and keep saying yes, even when I'm uncomfortable. And it also you know, brought to the surface the need to develop practices to be okay when you're in that space. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really enlightening and really heartfelt that you shared that. And you're absolutely right. I think during times of, of madness and uncertainty and just massive setbacks, when you can like look and, and find a silver lining and find that meaning in that, in that somehow, whether it's gratitude and looking at how much worse it could have been, whether you, whether people lost their lives in that situation or whether there's certain people in your life that you have that somebody else doesn't have, or whether there was a moment that you were able to, to use to better yourself, whatever it was like the better off, I think you'll be long-term. And I think one of the problems with, with what happens when we hit like these pain points is we just lean into the pain and that's all we focus on and we fixate on it because it's easy to do right. Instead of maybe accepting where we are in that pain and saying, okay, like what are some things I can do to mitigate and reduce the half-life? And like you were saying, you used, you leverage perspective, you leverage service, you leverage just really like being in that moment and being grateful that you still had your life. And right. Yeah. I mean, no, no doubt. And, and I think at the same time, it's also really important to acknowledge the fact that I'm one person with a, a very unique circumstance. There's certainly a certain amount of ability and privilege that exists in my life that doesn't exist in everybody's life. 
And we all have to, you know, I'm always hesitant to say this is the way to move through moments like this because I know this is the way that I did. And it allowed me a certain amount of grace in that moment. But I also know that, you know, people come from all walks of life with different levels of financial, emotional, social, cultural support or lack thereof. And I think it's really important that we also all, you know, like take each person as they come and offer invitations rather than shoulds. Right. Right. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I think it's it getting through those times is definitely individualistic and you're only going to respond based on what you know and like what your morals are, or what your values are, and like really like your level of consciousness and like how you were raised. And so that's, that's a really good yeah. point. Yeah. I mean, you know, this from your own story too, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so, so much of this is unfolded in your own life and you, your, your circumstances have shifted so dramatically in different seasons of life. You're right. And I was just having this conversation with somebody this morning, actually, about like, we were just, we were talking about how some people like in every moment, they're like, yeah, like just muscle through it, be positive, be positive. And I'm like, looking back, like, yeah, that, I mean, I had that mindset when I first, you know, got out of jail and everything, but looking back, like sometimes you just need to let people just sit in the pain a little bit and accept where they're at and let them move through at their own pace and just know that it's not up to you to be their drill sergeant. It's not up to you to, to tell people how to live their lives. And that was like, a, that was something I had to learn. And it took me some time. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of times it's, you know, the, our, the intent is benevolent. Like we really want good for ourselves and for those around us, for strangers, for those we love. And if something's really worked well for us, we want to share it. But it's, I'm always just really, I always try and be, be a tender and cautious um, about the way that I offer ideas. And, and just because we all, like I said, we all step into life and, and into each moment, very different people with, with very different circumstances. But you brought up a really interesting point too, which is this idea of sort of the always be positive and always, you know, like look on the bright side and, you know, do everything you can to get out of that space of negativity really, really fast. And, you know, not only is that actually a brutally hard thing for some people to do, but like you said, there is a certain amount of value in feeling the full sweep of emotion, the full sweep of experience in life. You know, it gives not, not that, you know, we would want anyone to dwell in a sense of deep pain or suffering or depression or anxiety or OCD, you know, like when, when things get to a level where it's literally stopping you from living a functional life and feeling and being alive, you know, that you need help, but allowing yourself to feel when bad things happen, allowing yourself to feel the emotion of loss, allowing yourself to, you know, actually feel the full spectrum of emotion is, is hard in the moment, but ultimately can be incredibly powerful. And it also adds contrast to your life. You know, there, there's really interesting research on what makes a good life in the context of emotions. And, you know, what it, there's a term out of the academic world, which I always think is kind of funny, called emodiversity. And that's basically the, what, the, what the research says is that the happiest, the most fulfilled people, people who report living the most satisfied lives are not the ones who actually tell you that they're persistently and perpetually happy. They're the ones who tell you that they have experienced the full spectrum of experience, of joy, of hardship, of loss, of gain, and they felt it all. And that that full, like that basket of contrast has been allowed in. And there's a strong correlation with that and actually saying, yeah, like I'm living a good life. Yeah. No, you're right. And I think it's, it's really hard for people sometimes to sit in their emotions because we're so we're addicted to like instant gratification, I guess, too, as a society, if you think about it, you know, 
when you were growing up, when I was growing up, I mean, even like you were probably what in your, in your thirties when I was doing this, but I was delivering pizza and I'd have to, to read a map to figure out where I was going. Right. And it could take like, I don't know, 15 minutes sometimes if you're going a long way to figure out like your route and your direction. And now in a matter of seconds, you just plug it into Waze, Google Maps, your Maps app on your iPhone, and you can figure out where you're going. If you want to know who won a baseball game last night, you just put it in Google or you go to ESPN, where before you'd have to wait till the next day to watch ESPN or get the newspaper or whatever it was. And so we've pretty much, I think, trained our mind that whenever we want something, we need to get it right now. And I think when people, at least from my, my own experience, when I have been emotional and I have had a hard time self-regulating, it's because I want the pain to go away right now. And I'll do, I did whatever I could with, with drugs back in the day. And now, you know, I'll, I'll just, it's more like busy work. Like I'll just get on my, my computer and I'll write, or I'll do, I'll listen to a podcast and, and I think it's, it's good or, and, and it can have obviously some benefits, but I've learned that the, the better I get at sitting in my pain and saying, okay, like, why am I like feeling these emotions? Like, why am I feeling this way? Why are these thoughts going through my head? Like over time, I've learned that I get better at handling those things. And, and I think that's a deep, like the deepest message I got from your book is that this, the, the sparked method, like the, the thing that you talk about most, it's really a, an essence of self-discovery and also reassurance. Like I found that when I read through your book and I did the test, I was like, oh, like I already kind of knew this about myself. Has that been common? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, it's really funny that so you know, the, the book is a deep dive into these things I call sparkotypes, you know, archetypes for work that make you come alive. And there's an assessment, like you mentioned, that that is completely free and available online. And and when the probably the, the two things that we hear most from people who complete the assessment, and, and we're talking over 500,000 people now, so it's a big data set. So one is that I feel validated. Not that anybody can validate you from the outside in, but it's just the tool reflects back something that Many people have known for their entire lives to be true to them, but also many people have stifled or ignored or been told by family or culture or society or school or work that it's not a viable or an appropriate impulse for work. You know, so they, they just kind of tuck it off to the side, never really understanding that, that this is actually part of your essential nature. And the more you stifle it, the more you suffer. So, so validation is one word that we hear a lot, which you know, people rarely say, oh, I'm so surprised by what this assessment told me because it really, it, it, it reveals this deeper impulse that most of us have all, always known was there, but for a myriad reasons, just um, walked away from. The other thing that we, we hear a lot is people tell us they feel seen, you know, that, that all of a sudden it's almost like somebody has been watching them from the inside out. They know their inner thoughts. They understand what moves them through life. They understand why they act in a certain way, why they have certain tendencies or preferences or behaviors, and they feel seen and they have language to describe this, this inner experience in a way that's really powerful and lands in, in, a, in a deeply meaningful and resonant way. And also then to have that language to then turn around and share this with other people to, to kind of say, look, this is me. Like, like read this and you will know me in a way that you haven't known me before. Yeah, you're, you're so right. And, and I think you, you mentioned it being like a thing for jobs and per, like a, pro, a professional thing, but I got a lot out of it personally. And I think a lot of people can, can use these different 
spark types just in their personal lives too. Like I had mentioned that I was the advocate and the nurturer and just on the nurturer side, so there was, there's three spark types. If I remember correctly, there's like your primary one, there's the shadow one, which helps drive the primary one. And then there's the anti, which is like the one that you're just not, and it, it was my anti was like essentialist, which was like organization, which I'm terrible at. So that all made sense too. And and I was like, nurture, you know, that makes, that makes a lot of sense because one of the, my, one of the gifts I've been told that I really didn't know was that I'm really good at listening to people. I'm good at holding space when people are like upset. I'm good at conveying a message in a way that's not judgmental. And I mean, I didn't really know. I knew that about myself a little bit, but it definitely enlightened me even more through, through reading that. And, you know, you've done, I think you've done, like you said, you have 500,000 people have enrolled in this thing. What was the, what was the inspiration behind this was it like i mean because i know a lot of people they'll they'll what they do today you know stems from wanting to help other people who were in pain in a moment where you were in pain did it come from that moment where you were the corporate lawyer and your immune system imploded because you were overworking yourself in a job that wasn't fulfilling well i think that was definitely part of part of it you know for me that if we go all the way back to you know like the the beginning of our conversation where I said, I, I, you know, it's a gymnast for like the first 20 years of my life. Basically I had this deep fascination with how people's bodies and minds work in a collaborative way. And sometimes also work in a really dysfunctional way. I think over time that evolved to this just deep fascination with human beings and why they do what they do. And oftentimes also human potential and why so many people feel this sense of stifled potential that you know, we show up, we have this felt sense of potential, like we feel that we're here for so much more, that there's, you know, there, we feel like there's something out there that we can't quite grasp and also something inside of us, a potential that we can't really figure out how to release out of us. And we move through life just kind of like keeping on, keeping on, never really deepening into that and figuring out what is that thing, you know, or what is that blend of things? What is the deeper impulse? And so I've just had this lifelong fascination. And I think you know, I did a stint, like you said, after college, I went to law school and then practiced for about four and a half, five years. And during that time, I, I literally was on working on a deal where we barely went home for three weeks. And when I finally did, I had, I went straight to the hospital because I had an abscess, a, a giant infection that had sort of uh, mushroomed in the middle of my body after my immune system shut down from the stress that required emergency surgery. And uh, that was a, a huge wake up call for me that sort of that was a catalyzing moment after this lifelong fascination with these ideas. I realized that I was literally on the way to killing myself for something that I could care less about. And I don't knock the path of law at all. I think it's like a fantastic career for a lot of people. It just, the, it was misaligned for me and, and more particularly the way I was approaching it and the choices that I made within the field of law were misaligned for me. Honestly, had I known then what I know now, I sometimes think that if I, if I went back, I would have been better equipped to actually have the tools to make decisions that would have allowed me to stay in that field, but reimagine the way that I did it, make different choices, and actually probably have a flourishing career doing it. I have no regrets at all because I, you know, I, I love what's emerged out of it. But yeah, that became for sure a big catalyst for me to deepen into these questions of what is the fundamental nature of work that makes people come alive? Like, can we, can we deconstruct it? Can we understand it? And with the work that I've done over the last two decades, I've realized that the questions so many people have been coming to me with is what should I do with my life? 
And when they ask me in particular, they're really focused on work. You know, like, how do I find and do work that makes me come alive? So, so all the work around the sparkotypes is really, it's the evolution of decades of inquiry and reflection and then research, you know, trying to say like, well, are, are there actually a set of identifiable, mappable impulses for effort that give this feeling of aliveness? Can we identify them? Can we map them out? And then can I build tools that would help me understand them better, that would also validate them at scale and help other people really discover what is this impulse for them? So that, that's been this, it's been this sort of like evolutionary genesis for this current body of work. Wow, that's amazing. And, and, and I guess the essentially the, the test, once you find out what your sparkotypes are, it can be used, you know, like I was saying to better yourself personally, but like you made a point, like it can, can really be used as a mechanism professionally for, for anyone to say, okay, like maybe I'm in college right now. I'm trying to figure out like what path I should go. And it could almost be a guide to kind of help bring you back to center, be your North star, if you will, or maybe you're somebody right now that's just miserable in your job and it can give you validation or reassurance that it's just quote unquote, not you, you're just not in the right career path that really lights you up. So like you hear this a lot that you really have to be doing something that's fulfilling. You have to have purpose. You have to have passion. You have to have this mission. It's super popular in the personal development world, but I think you know, I don't think it's as black and white. I mean, sure. You definitely want to be obviously lit up and with, with what you do, but you know, it's not like everybody can just leave their nine to five job and just go do a passion project. So what advice do you, like, how, how does somebody know, like if they're, if they should make that shift, whether they should just stay in that nine to five job or make that leap and really go after something that that really lights them up. We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and earth echo foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Yeah. So I love this question because you're right. So much of the advice in the um, sort of popular self-help world is, you know, like the moment you realize that this isn't right, just blow it all up, walk away because any minute that you spend doing this thing, you know, that it doesn't completely align with, you know, like this the deep passion or the thing that made that you love um, is, is a moment wasted. Well, you know, when you're 22 years old and you've got no, nothing on the line, the stakes are really low and nobody is looking to you for financial security or support and you don't have any loans or mortgages or supporting family members, whatever it may be. Sure. You know, may, maybe that advice actually, the pain of making a misstep, if it's not right, it, it's, it's pretty recoverable. But you get a little bit further into life in your 30s, 40s, 50s. 
and tell somebody to do that, you know, when they've got a mortgage, they've got three kids, maybe they've got a, a parent that they're taking care of or a cousin or a community that they're deeply involved in that they're helping to support and they've got debt. That is not, it's just not advice that is intelligent or respectful of any individual's unique circumstance. So essentially you're telling them, here's what I want you to do. And they're telling themselves, well, but I can't do that because practically I would be letting everybody in my life down and taking a huge risk, not just for me, but for all of them. Then you're effectively telling them like you're stuck, you know, suck it up because you're not one of the ones who are gifted with a circumstance that allows you to do that without having a lot on the line. And then we point to sort of like these rare outliers of people who do it saying, well, this is the example that says it's possible. And in fact, it is, it it may be possible for some people, but still those are the outliers. And I'm never a fan of trying to develop broad invitations based on the experiences of rare outliers. It's just not, to me, that doesn't feel right. So I actually opened the book with a short note imploring people not to blow up what they're doing, even if it's not, you know, it's not the thing that's giving them the feeling they want to give because, you know, we tend to dramatically overestimate the, the joy that we'll feel when we walk away from something, you know, like if, if we have a job and we feel like it's just emptying to us, it's just not checking all the boxes. We tend to think to ourselves, well, when I, when I blow it up, when I, like I walk away from it, I'm going to feel amazing and I'll be flooded with joy and fulfillment and freedom. And then I'm just going to like really rapidly find this next thing that's going to nourish me on every possible level. And so we, we, we overestimate the joy and the ease in that experience. And we dramatically underestimate the pain of the disruption that we may be causing both to ourselves and to others. And also we tend to really underestimate the amount of time and investment of energy and the process it's going to take us to figure out what is that next step that will not just simply repeat you know, the experiences that I've had before, but with different paint on the walls, different team, a different organization and a different industry, which is what so many people do. And then 18 months later, find themselves ruining the day again, but now having also endured so much pain and disruption along the way and feeling even more frustrated and in a place of pure futility because now they really don't know how to fix this. You know, to me, a much more human approach is to say, okay, first, let me deepen into a process of self-inquiry, self-discovery, self-knowledge, awakening. Let me do what I can to just really understand what's working and what's not working, what I need to, to get this feeling. So to me, you know, the, the, there are many tools to do that. They're great tools and assessments. The Sparkotype is just very unique and specific in that it identifies any individual's unique impulse for work that makes them come alive. And I even deconstruct that because I want to get specific. You know, when I use the phrase come alive, I'm talking about the intersection of five different things. One is a sense of meaning, like what you're doing actually matters. It's meaningful to you and hopefully to others. The ability to drop into that really just beautiful blissed out state of flow where you absorb yourself in the task. Time seems to fly in the blink of an eye. You become hyper-generative, hyper-creative, hyper-cognitive. You feel like this well of potential is being released. Uh, the third element is what the corporate world would call engagement. I uh, like to use more natural language, which is just excitement and, and energy for what you're doing. Like you're actually excited to wake up in the morning and do this thing again. The fourth element is what I call expressed potential, meaning you're not holding back. You don't feel stifled in any particular way. And the final one is purpose. 
And that exists on two levels, having an immediate sense of purpose. Like I know, I know what I'm working towards. Like there's a certain thing I'm working towards, but also more broadly, a sense of purpose in life. And what we find is that, you know, the more you can identify the, the fundamental nature of work that will get you closer to those feelings and then align what you do with that impulse. And, and that's the spark type, the more likely you are to say that you are experiencing all those five things or coming alive or being sparked. And in my mind, the much better approach is to actually spend a whole bunch of time figuring out what is my personal impulse? Then how can I reimagine what I'm doing right now to optimize for that in this immediate context? How can I figure out like a hundred ways to do a little bit more of this thing in the work that I already have? And that may mean even expanding what you're doing beyond the scope of your job description simply because it gives you the feeling that you want to have. And when you start to do that, very often that thing that you thought was absolutely awful, you start to realize, actually, there's a lot that was good about it. There's a lot that was aligned about it. There were these few things that were really off and causing a lot of pain. And now that I'm starting to optimize much more for my sparkotype, those things are resolving themselves. And you may even feel like you've been able to reimagine your current work on a level where you feel no need to leave at all. In fact, it's actually pretty good. And even if at that point you choose to make a move away from it, you will be so much more lit up. You'll be, you'll, you'll know yourself so much better that when you make that move, you'll be in a much better position psychologically and emotionally to actually do it from a place that is constructive rather than destructive. I know that was a really long rant, but it's, it's such an important, I'm so glad you asked the question because it's so important. I think there's so much harmful mythology around it. You brought up so many good points. And I think the first one, to kind of sum up what you said was like, wherever you go, there you are. Like you said, like so many people underestimate the amount of pain that will occur if you just, you know, up and leave your job. If you have kids, if you have the mortgage, if you have a wife, if you got that the life, you can't just like quit your job and just go to zero income and then just be an entrepreneur because you saw a meme about like, that's what you need to do to, to feel it up or whatever. And, and then you overestimate the amount of joy, like starting a business, doing something new. It sucks. It's hard. There's it takes a lot of, I, I, you know, I, I've done it many times over. It's really, really, really hard. <laughs> and, and I think I th it really should hopefully, I think people just also need to make sure that they're just not just miserable with themselves and make sure they're checking the boxes of taking care of themselves you know, with their health and fitness, making sure they're taking care of their mental health, making sure they're taking care of their relationships, making sure they're just taking care of the space within the, within themselves to make sure that it's not just a reflection of how they feel about themselves. And that's why I think what you said, like this, this doing the spark type is, is the ultimate form of self-discovery. Right. And I think like you, you brought up an awesome point that you might be in the right job, you just might be disconnected from who you actually are as a person and not really knowing what your, your contribution is to that profession, not, not knowing the role you're playing, or maybe you kind of have that hint or that gut feeling. And this kind of gives you that reassurance because I think self-discovery is so important. I think a lot of people are miserable because they don't get a chance to really know themselves and they end up, you know, using other people and other things to fill their own identity. So I'm so glad that you, you brought that up. So I guess along the, the sparkotype, along the lines of the sparkotype, like which ones are the most common that you've seen? I know you've said you're the maker and the scientist, I'm the advocate and the nurturer. Have there been a few that have, have really stood out? You know, so there, there are 10 of these different types. As I said, over 500,000 people have completed the assessment now. So 
I can't speak to the prevalence of each type in the general population because 500,000 is a lot of people, but it's not 7.8 billion. So, you know, so, but what I can speak to what we see in the data set that we have, you know, and actually share the, the prevalence data in, in the appendix in the back of the book, because a lot of people are just really fascinated, like how common or rare am I, you know, is my unique pairing. And, you know, so there, um, there's a very high prevalence of the maven which is, so the fundamental impulse for the maven is knowledge acquisition. It's all about learning. You wake up in the morning and you just want to know as much as you can about, you know, uh, either a very specific topic area or more broadly about like all of humanity. And some people sort of like weave the spectrum between those two things. But the maven is one of the most prevalent impulses um, that we see among the data set that we have. The maker is up there as well. What's clearer is the least prevalent ones, which tend to be two types we call the performer and the warrior. So the performer, the fundamental impulse of the performer is to energize, enliven, and animate an interaction, moment, or experience. A lot of times people think of that as, oh, oh well, that's performing arts. That's a singer, actor, dancer, theater, film. And it can be. But that impulse can also be expressed in literally any setting. It can be expressed in a conversation between a parent and a child. It can be expressed in therapy. It can be expressed in a board meeting. It can be expressed in a sales conversation. It can be expressed behind a bar, you know, like in a pub. Um, so that is one of the least prevalent spark types. And in fact, it is the most prevalent anti-sparkotype, which we can talk about in a bit if you want. And then the warrior is, is similar in that it's, it's a very low representation. And the fundamental, the fundamental impulse for the warrior is organizing. It's gathering, organizing, and leading people through a, a journey or an adventure or from point A to point B. We sometimes talk about this as leadership and we say it's a skill. And in fact, there are a lot of skills that go along this. We're not talking about skills when we talk about the spark type. Anyone can gain the skill of all 10 of these types. We're talking about a fundamental and, and, and innate impulse to actually wake up in the morning and just want to do this thing, whether you're skilled or not. So those are sort of some of the things that we see on the different, different ends of the spectrum. I want to dive into the, the anti-sparkotype because this is going to probably be something that so many people struggle with is working on their weaknesses. And you hear a lot like, oh, just play to your strengths. And then you hear the other side. It's like, oh, you got to address your weaknesses to get better. And so the sparkotypes, I mean, at least from what I understood with taking the test is I found what I was really good at. And then when I saw when I was, I remember when I was answering some of the questions on organizational, like, yeah, not me, not me, not me. Do you advise people when they get their anti-sparkotype to take the time to unpack that and learn how to, to kind of up-level that? Or do you advise people just to really lean in on the ones that are, are more positive in their life? Yeah. So it's an interesting question, which is, uh, it comes out of the world of positive psychology a lot and strengths work. You know, there are two dominant strengths assessments and approaches to strengths. One is StrengthsFinder, which came out of Clifton Gallup. And that tends to look at strengths as either talents or skills um, or gifts. You know, like these are the things you're good at. The other approach is what's called the VIA strengths. That actually comes directly out of the world of positive psychology. And it's more along the lines of character traits. And, and in those worlds, you know, like the idea is, the recommendation is identify these strengths and then spend all of your time doing as much of them as possible. Don't really worry about the things that are on the opposite end of the spectrum that are your, 
your least present skills or talents or character traits because they'll kind of take care of themselves. So the sparkotypes are a little bit different in that we're actually not talking about skill or talent or character trait. What we're talking about is a very honed in underlying impulse to exert effort in a particular way for no other reason than the feeling that it gives you. Now, that impulse, if it's followed, may end up leading you to be incredibly skilled at the, the different ways that the impulse can be expressed. You know, so you mentioned I'm a maker. Like my primary sparkotype is the maker. So the impulse there is to make ideas manifest. That has shown up in different seasons of my life. When I was a kid, I would, I would literally like assemble these Franken bikes out of multiple bike parts from you know, the junkyard. And I was constantly creating things. I was making things all the time. It showed up a little bit later in my teens as a painter. You know, I would actually back in the day where some of the best art on the planet was album covers, you know, back when there were actually albums, although they're coming back now, which is really fun. You know, I was a kid in high school who was painting album covers on jean jackets in part just because I love doing it in part because it gave me a little bit of walking around change. And I got really good at that, you know, so, so it's, it's important to tease out the fact that I'm talking about the underlying impulse here. That impulse, if followed, will often drive you to invest so much effort that you become really skilled at it. And you may even have some innate talent at that same thing, but it's not, it's not the, the same type of thing where you're building a skill or building something, you know, at where you can improve it. It's really this, it's this deeper impulse to exert effort that either exists or doesn't exist. And I have yet to, it's very hard to tease out where this comes from. Because to do that, to, you know, people have asked me, is it genetic? Is it, is it learned? Is it environmental? Is it preordained if you, you know, have a spiritual orientation? The answer is, I don't know. I just, I know that it is. I know we can identify it. And I know that it tends to show up very early in people's lives and stay fairly stable throughout their lives. We can get really, really good at it and build skill around it. But the impulse tends to stay fairly stable barring some really major traumatic things that literally will rewire your brain. That said, when we talk about the anti-sparkotype, some people will, will, and this question has come up a couple of times in this way, somebody will, will have as their anti-sparkotype. And their anti-sparkotype, by the way, for those who are watching and listening, that is the type of work that tends to take the most out of you, tends to be the heaviest lift and require the greatest recovery. It doesn't mean you're bad at it. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that there's something in you where this takes more work for you. And when you do it, you generally, it takes a bit more for you to recover. So let's say you get something where, you know, your anti-sparkotype is the nurturer. Well, people have, have, have gotten that in the assessment. They come to me and said, does that mean I'm a terrible person? I'm, am I a heartless person? Like, do I just not care about people or humanity? And, and I would reflect it back to them and say, well, well it, do you feel that about yourself? And they'll be like, no, I love my family, my sisters, my friends, this and that. And I said, yeah, it's, it's not about that. What that tells you is that for some reason, this impulse where you tap into a deep well of empathy and then lift others up, you elevate them, you're, you're of service, you, you give care and take care of other people it may actually be really meaningful to you, but there's something about it that takes more effort for you than for others and probably requires more recovery. That doesn't mean that you don't do it. And that doesn't mean that you don't eventually become really skilled at doing it because you want to be better at it. It just means that you're wired in a way where it lands differently. And it's good to know that 
you may have to really double down on your own nurturing, your own self-care so that you continue to refill the well because you're acknowledging that you know your well is getting emptied pretty quickly, even though seeing people be lifted up is something that you like. This comes up in the context of the advocate also. It's funny that you have advocate and nurturer as your, your primary and shadow sparkotypes. Those two lie on sort of like the extreme end of the service side of the sparkotypes. So, so there's a spectrum where you know, you're, you're heavily fulfilled by process versus heavily fulfilled by service. And those two lie on the service side. You, know, you literally have to be in relation to others to come alive. But folks who get the advocate as their anti-sparkotype would say to me, okay, so does that you know, mean that I shouldn't be standing up or championing ideas, ideals, communities, people? You know, does that kind of let me off the hook? And I said, absolutely not. Right. You know, what it tells you is that the impulse might not be really strong or innate, and it may take more effort out of you, and you may require a greater recovery. But you also may well have a really strong value and belief set that you know, around equality and equity. And, and, and it, it's really important for you to actually take a stand and, and actually advocate strongly, you know, because you feel that that is really powerfully aligned with your values and how you want to move through the world and what you care about. It just tells you something in you is going to empty you. And you're going to really want to make sure that you're taking care of yourself along the way. You brought up a really, really good point that was having me self-reflect as you were talking about the nurturer and the advocate for myself and that sometimes being the nurturer and the advocate can get me in trouble too, where, because I've had, you know, I've had codependency stuff throughout the years where I'm like so focused on helping other people that sometimes my own health, you know, falls by the wayside. I think that's pretty common among people who are personal trainers, people who are in the self-help space where you're just so used to giving, giving, giving. And then the, in the advocate space, like you're, you always feel like you have to be saying something. You, like, I always feel like I have to be creating content. I always feel like I have to be putting a message out there. That's, that's somewhat relevant. So have you found with some of these other sparkotypes, there's like a, like a, there could be some negative traits with some of them too, that people need to pay attention to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are common dark sides and triggers right. for all of them. You know, the, so what's interesting is the 10 sparkotypes are actually a combination of a few different things. So un, the, the center of all of them is this impulse for effort. Like I feel this impulse to invest myself in a particular way because of the way it makes me feel. But wrapped around that is this really common set of behaviors, tendencies, and preferences. Doesn't mean everybody has them, but they're common enough so that you know, they, they really form this, this broader archetype around each of these 10 impulses. And part of that is, you know, tendencies and preferences and behaviors in a really positive, constructive way, and sometimes destructive. You know, for example, um, let's take the scientist because we haven't talked about the scientist yet. The, the fundamental impulse for the scientist is to figure things out. It's all about burning questions complex problems and puzzles. You wake up in the morning, you're just like, let me at something which is really thorny, a wicked problem. And the longer it takes you, the more complicated, the better. You just love the process of figuring the thing out. There's a dark side for that orientation though, especially when the thing that you're working on, the problem that you're trying to solve is big and, and complex and may take years to actually figure out or unwind which is that you, be, you can become so obsessed 
so utterly absorbed in the pursuit of the answer to this burning question that you lose sight of your, yourself, your well-being, your relationships, your health, the world around you. You kind of go into this dark hole of obsession, trying to chase the answer to this question. So it's really important to understand that that is uh, a potential trigger for you. It's a potential dark side that you can tip towards and then set up circuit breakers in your life to pull you out of that, whether that is, you know, somebody who knows you well or a partner, somebody who sort of like knows your orientation and checks in with you regularly and kind of says, hey, how are you doing? Like, are you taking care of yourself? Like, how are your relationships with your partner or your friends? Like, are you actually, are you eating well and stuff like that? So there are mechanisms that can be super helpful in allowing that impulse to be expressed in a way that is healthy rather than destructive. Yeah, I feel like you're the type of person or people who are the scientists or the, like, the can be like the overthinkers, right? They're constantly thinking about the pro- like problems they can solve, or it's constantly like the pursuit of more and, and how you can figure out this and that. So there, and there's a lot of people that struggle with that. So like, what have you done personally to help mitigate that in your own life? Yeah. And, and you're right, by the way. So the, the maker and, and the scientists fall really heavily on the process fulfilled side of the spectrum, meaning you know, like we're, we're, we can obsess over process, you know, like massively we're, we don't have to be in relation to other people, which actually increases the risk that we go into like this, you know, like self-absorbed spin for me, you know, I have my wife in my life who, who really checks in on me on a regular basis. She kind of, you know, and, and we're together 30 years now. So she has a pretty good sense for when I'm pursuing the process of making it a healthy way and when I'm just getting a little too lost in an obsessive process. And we talk about it, you know, on a regular basis. We also work together. So, you know, we are each other's check-in mechanisms, supports, and champions all at the same time. But I think also there's another practice for me, which has been astonishingly powerful, which is meditation. I've been, I practice mindfulness meditation and also pranayama, which is a Sanskrit word for breathing, uh, breathing exercises that really ground me in my body. And mindfulness for me as a, as an actual daily sitting practice is a practice that both allows me to train my attention, to drop things when I find myself spinning, but even more important, it develops what I call meta attention, which is the ability to sort of zoom the lens out and actually be able to almost look down on yourself and understand where your mind is at any given time and be able to identify, am I you know, investing myself in something in a healthy way or am I spinning out of control? Am I, am I you know, doing it in a way that is a little bit obsessive and excluding things and people and activities that I actually hold dear? And is it time to make a different choice to pull myself out of that? And I found that practice. It's not an intervention. It doesn't work you know, overnight. It is for me probably going on, you know, it's, it's well over a decade, probably 11, 12 years in my life now as a daily practice. And it's something that over time, it just changes the way that you both experience your own inner thoughts and also the way that you relate to and step into the world around you. Introspection, self-reflection, stepping out of the situation, getting quiet. It all works so well, but yet it's it's so so hard to do. And it's you're right. I think in, in the moments where we're really overthinking and we're just going like, you know, hundred miles an hour and trying to really bring ourselves back to center to stop focusing on the process, I think just really getting quiet and and developing like self-awareness, like we've talked about pretty much this whole episode and 
and self-discovery on why you're feeling those feelings and just accepting where you're at and then just kind of figuring out, okay, like, is this real? Am I, is this going to actually happen? Are these feels legitimate? And just like working your way through that. And then you, like you said, like it doesn't happen overnight, but you work that muscle and the more you work a muscle, the stronger it gets over time. So I, I think I want to go back to, to something we were talking about earlier and that when people are like unhappy with their jobs and we were talking about how people shouldn't just blow up and leave. But I know like at the center of, of your life is this notion of living a good life. You know, you've got this podcast and company that's really been the nucleus for a lot of what you're doing now. And I know that the main focuses of that, there's like, I think a few pillars, it's like community, vitality, and contribution, I think is what's at the center of it, if I remember correctly. And you've interviewed a lot of amazing people, some of the most inspirational thought leaders, celebrities, writers, just everybody across different levels, different spectrums. Like, have you seen a common theme of like what they do on a daily basis to ensure that they're doing the best that they can to, to be happy and ultimately live a good life? Yeah. So I've seen probably a lot of common themes. Everybody does it differently. Everybody expresses themselves and sort of like, you know, actualizes it differently in their lives. But a attention, well, actually attention to attention, <laughs> you know, so many of them have developed some sort of practice whether it's a meditative practice or a spiritual practice, but they've developed some sort of practice that allows them to access a certain amount of stillness on a regular basis to create space and then actually reflect on how they are in the moment and what's going on again in, in their, their inner world and also in the world around them so that they can be less reactive and more responsive. I think that's one common pattern. And, and many wouldn't use that same language. Some people have developed these practices or habits or rituals very intentionally. Some others have just kind of like stepped into them and, and it's given them a certain feeling and then continued them. You know, some artists are very ritualistic and, and they've developed a very practice-based way that they approach the art, not intentionally trying to cultivate any state of mind, but just because it feels good and um, it makes them feel good. So they keep doing it. So I think that's one. And then I think the other one is really valuing relationships, valuing people, you know, love <laughs> and, and the four levels of love, you know, like companionate love, you know, that would be friendship, compassionate love, romantic love and attachment love. You know, I think really understanding that we all, we, we tend to flourish more when we have varying levels of all these four expressions of that and relationships. This could be a person, it could be a pet, it could be nature, but if we have it, those, those things fulfilled in different ways. And then the third one is really, you know, meaningful work that people have figured out how to invest themselves, like doing the thing that they do for the vast majority of their waking hours for their entire lives. They figured out how to spend at least part of that and a, and a healthy enough part of that for them doing something that is deeply meaningful to them that allows them to sort of like express themselves on, on the truest, the purest level that gives them the feeling of being alive. And I think those three domains, you know, are really, I, I see in so many of the people that I've had just the amazing good fortune to sit down with over a long, lot of years now. That's awesome. And, and it's such good advice. And I think it's important for those that are listening. If you're at any spot in your life and you're not fulfilled, you're unhappy, and you want to make a drastic change, not that you 
shouldn't, but I think you should definitely listen to what Jonathan just said. And a lot of the other things that we've talked about throughout this episode before you kind of, kind of do that because, you know, it's a matter of fact, like what ha- like in life, what happens is we get to a point and it's easy to say the grass is always greener. It's easy to point the finger and say, Oh, it's the job's fault. It's that person's fault. And really we just haven't taken the time as humans. Cause we're so busy. We're so focused on other things to really look within and say, okay, like what lights me up? What drives me? What would make me happy? What are my goals? And I think your book and the assessment and just everything you talk about is a great bridge to, to help people do that. And like the one qu- last question I have for you that I've, I was meaning to ask earlier is, is this idea of patience, which I know if somebody is so focused on the process, like, like you are, and so many other people, they want this to happen yesterday. And I know I've heard you talk like your advice on to podcasters specifically on like, you know, you've had a, po- a successful podcast for a super long time, but it wasn't built in a year. It wasn't built in two years. It's been built consistently over time. So what has been your biggest best practices other than mindfulness and meditation to really hone in on that patience muscle so that to be able to experience as much success as you've had? That's a good question because I don't think I've done anything intentionally with the purpose of cultivating patience, but I would say it has been cultivated as a side effect of the practices that we've talked about, but also I'm somebody, and again, this is probably because I'm a maker. I am, I can obsess with craft a lot and I will, and I'm a writer. I I absolutely love working with language. So when I write a book, it's not just because I want to get the information out. I care deeply about the language, you know, I, and I will read a sentence that somebody who I respect madly as a writer has written. And I'll think to myself, you know, like that one sentence just made me laugh and cry simultaneously. And and I'll tell myself, I can't write that sentence now. I don't, you know, like I'm over a decade into my writing career, but I do not have the level of craft to produce that sentence right now. Maybe the the blend of the level of craft, the level of self-awareness, the sense of openness or vulnerability or humor, like it's just not there right now. But I know I'm on a path and I know I'm devoted to that. And safe bet in another 10, 20 years, I think I'll be able to write that sentence. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you why I'm okay with that. But what I can tell you is that I literally have that spinning in my head. And I am okay with the fact that it'll take me that amount of time because I know that the feeling that that sentence just gave me was so rich that the, the possibility of me being able to create that and then set it out into the world and have it land in, in the hearts and minds of potentially millions of people and create a similar feeling, I'm down to putting in the work to be able to do that. I can't tell you why though, I, you know, I think, but I can tell you that there's something in me that says, I'm cool with waiting because I know that this is a process that you can't rush writing as a craft, there's no hack to, to world-class writing. There just isn't. People have been trying to figure it out for a really long time. You can get a lot better. And there are certainly great AI apps and stuff like that now that really help with like, but you know, fundamentally it's, it's the same thing, you know, with well-being. It's like at the end of the day, you just got to put in the reps. Yeah. And do you think a lot of what you just said comes from the fact that you've just gotten really comfortable with trusting the process and knowing that, You've gone, you've gone through so many, I mean, we, we've all gone through our own level of hardship, but it's, you've gone through a lot, right. Between the yoga studio and, 
your your health scare and you know stuff that everyone's experienced over the last few years and i'm sure you've gone through a lot of other things like do you think you're you've gotten so good at trusting the process through your ability of overcoming these setbacks in your life that it's given you this peace of mind that you have today i mean maybe certainly i faced adversity so everybody has you know like i said i'm 55 you don't you don't get there without being beat up like a, a bunch along the way, no matter who you are. And I certainly don't put myself, you know, like I don't compare what I've been through to anybody else. But I, I would say also practices that allow me to really keep returning to a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And that includes studying what is a growth mindset. I'm a huge fan of Carol Dweck's work on that. Yeah. And um, realizing that, you know, there is an intentional, an intentional state of mind that you need to keep actively investing in, which is that, you know, success in any domain is, is really not so much limited by innate talent or ability, but is really a huge percent of that is just, is the fact that you can grow, you know, and that growth takes time. It takes work. It takes practice. It takes mentorship. It takes learning and discovery. And I think also, you know, what's coming to me right now as well is that, so Good Light Project, which you mentioned, like our, our podcast, which started as a video series almost a decade ago now. So I have been sitting down with some of the most incredibly accomplished people on the planet in nearly every domain you can imagine from art to science, to industry, to family, to parenting, to relationships, to mindset, to spirituality. And and maybe I've seen like this other common pattern, which is that they're all in it for the long term. You know, like none of these people just became mega stars overnight in their fields. And they're not in it, even if they are at this point when I sit down with them, that's not why they're in it. They have been engaged in becoming better at what they're doing very often for decades. And there's no like they have no interest in stopping that process. And I think that's just kind of rubbed off on me. I think. Being exposed to that for so long through so many wise hearts and minds and seeing that that common pattern has almost sort of infused itself into me and, and allowed me to understand that, oh, this is what it takes. And because I want to someday develop a level of craft as a maker that allows me to, to create and make meaning at the highest level possible, I'm good with that. Mm. It's, it's a really, really interesting point, both on the growth mindset and like the other thing you've learned from the guests, because I think internally, like none of us really know, I don't really personally know anybody who's been an overnight success. Like I'm trying to think back to some of the people that I've interviewed or friends or people I've interviewed or I've heard on other people's podcasts. And it's not like I've ever heard someone be like, yeah, like overnight, I, be- I became a Grammy award-winning artist or overnight, I won a Nobel peace prize or overnight, I won the Super Bowl. It was like, years and years and years and years but just somehow we get this cognitive dissonance and disconnect that like oh like i need to be an overnight success or i'm not successful and you're right you got to trust the process play the long game and jonathan i've really enjoyed this conversation it's filled with so many nuggets and i encourage people to to buy your book that will be out when i release this and and also to take the test take the quiz you gain so much insight and it's almost a good taste right now of what the book has to offer. So is there anything else you'd like to share or where people can find more, find out more about you? Yeah, no, that that's great. I mean, to me, you know, the, the assessment, like you said, the Sparkotype assessment, it's online, it's available to anyone. It's free because 
accessibility and access to that level of tool and insight is just really important to me to sort of lower the barriers to it. And for those who feel like they want to go deeper into it, like by all means, like the book will take you way deeper into it. But most importantly, whether it's it's my tools or, or the things that we're creating or this book or something else, you know, my invitation would really just be say yes to some process of self-inquiry, self-discovery and self-awareness, because that is the foundation for us being able to be more intentional in the choices that we make and the actions that we take. And, and it's that intentionality that fundamentally ends up leading to a good life. Awesome. Such wise words to end the conversation. Well, I will make sure to plug all that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening on, this is going to be one where you're definitely going to want to, to share a takeaway and, and some tips that, that Jonathan shared that you're going to implement in your life. So take a screenshot, tag Jonathan, tag myself, go out and get his book. But what you, what you want to do is definitely share like what you learn, what you're going to implement, tag him, tag myself. We'd love to hear your feedback. And uh, we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.